0: Welcome in to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am Will Strickson, hosting today for the first time. Apologies. I'm joined today by the great Robin Davison. Robin, how are you?
1: I'm brilliant, thanks. I don't think anyone's ever prefaced my name with the great before. Um, So that's very nice. Thank you, Will. How are you doing on this fine day?
0: First time for everything. I'm great. We have got a really good guest. On, and a really good interview, because spoilers, we've already recorded it, uh, with Neb Bolting talking about his new book and the Tour de France, which starts in two days after this comes out, which is really good timing because, you know, voice of the tour now, if you watch it on ITV. What have you been up to recently, Robin,
1: before we get to that interview? What have I been up to? Well, I've been down in Reading. Uh, if you don't know, I live in Manchester, so it's a bit far away. Uh, I've been looking after my sister's Bernese mountain dog, who is 14 months old. Uh, So very much a puppy, but very much built like a truck or a tree. He's huge. He barrels everywhere. And I love him so, so much. Uh, I'm also looking forward to the baseball this weekend because both me and Will, Will being you, are going to go see the London series finally again on its return Let's return to London. How are you feeling about that?
0: Yeah, good. And obviously this weekend being last weekend. Of course, course. So time. It will have already happened by the time this comes out. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's meant to be really hot, which is Sun Cream on, caps on. Mm. But yeah, I come from a family of New York Yankees fans, as do you, which probably to the distaste of any baseball fans listening. I don't know enough about it to know who to root for out of the Chicago Cubs and St. Louis Cardinals. So I'm just sort of, need some advice.
1: I have always liked watching the Cubs. I mean, they've got rid of their sort of core infield from when they won the World Series back in, when was it? 2016, I'm not too sure. Um, So even though that's happened, I do kind of have like a little tiny special place in my heart for the Cubs. The Cardinals have been appalling this season. Let me pull up their record one sec.
0: This is when we've lost Every single listener of the podcast. Like, Why are you talking about baseball? You can skip through the in the description we'll have put when the interview starts. So you yeah. can ignore all this American stuff.
1: To be fair, it's not as bad as I was expecting. The Cardinals are 3143 and the Cubs talk amongst yourselves. I just accidentally typed in Cuba instead of the Cubs. So that's brilliant. What a great start to this podcast. Cubs are 35 38.
0: And this is the problem with baseball that I have. There are too many games. There are too many games. And if you're watching overseas, it's not just like, oh, yeah, stick it on. Obviously, it's equivalent sport here is cricket. And mm. cricket does not have that problem. Cricket's games, I mean, baseball games are long for what they are.
1: I, they've actually, no, right? Okay, first off, Will, they've introduced a rule now where there's a pitch clock. So games are roughly like two hours and a half as opposed to like the four hours and a half they used to be.
0: I know. And they're, so they're struggling to make that four and a half hours entertaining, whereas cricket have just done five days of the ashes, which was entertainment all the way through.
1: I'll take your word for it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> so they just need to have fewer games in the season, get on with the playoffs, kick the, the dead wood out and on the go. I don't need any of this 400 games a year because they don't mean anything.
1: No, I, I can't lie. I do agree with you there, you know, especially say if you live in America, no one's going to like a Tuesday afternoon game because people have work, surprisingly. Uh, I mean, it's great for me. So that makes it like 6 p.m. our time. I'm like, whoa, this is brilliant as opposed to like being in California and then I have to stay up until 3 a.m. So yeah, I'd probably cap it at around maybe 100, 120 games, which is
0: way too many
1: 40 less than than usual that's that's a decent chunk that's like a month
0: think about cycling right making it a bit more on topic cycling doesn't you don't have to wait like that the longest race is 21 stages everyone matters even then some of them don't matter but they have a story within the story right like any game of baseball if cycling was a hundred 100 days throughout the season that was all going to one title, like the World Tour, number one, whatever. It's decided by week three. Obviously, you have the players at the end, but then just skip skip to that.
1: Logistics, Will. So what you're saying is a boring baseball game is equivalent to a cycling transitional stage?
0: Yeah, except every game throughout the whole season is a cycling transitional stage.
1: Well, you know what? I won't go and see you this, this weekend slash last weekend then because we're time travellers now. <laughs> anyway
0: right should we get to the conversation
1: i think we should mate
0: okay enjoy so welcome back to the podcast for a record third appearance the most of any guest we've ever had firmly securing his place as the first entry into the cyclist magazine podcast hall of fame commentator (laughs) presenter podcaster and most importantly today author now bolting welcome back
2: Thank you, Will. I appreciate that. That's um. I don't know what to make of that, really, other than, uh, you know, uh, I'm honoured. I'm honoured. I'm honored. Is it a trophy? Not yet, but you're welcome to make one.
1: Yeah, we have guests on this podcast and they make their own trophies.
2: <laughs> it's that kind of podcast. That's fine. I'm, I'm down with that. I'll do that. Yeah, but every time we've
0: been on, we've had different hosts. So oh, let's keep it interesting. Your book is out officially. Well, when this goes out, it's last week, but today is tomorrow.
2: Today it's tomorrow, but in the future it'll be in the past. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Exactly,
0: which is a a great way to start. Uh, And it is called 1923, The Mystery of Lot 212 or 212 of your preferences and a Tour de France Obsession. Uh, We'll put a link in all the descriptions that will go on all the things and on our website so you can buy it, which you probably should because it's a really good book. Obviously, it's 1923. For a bit of context for listeners, things that happened 100 years ago, which is obviously why it's out this year, in 1923 include, and some of this is in the book, some of this is not. Original Wembley Stadium was opened. The Yankee Stadium first game, which is a nod to Robin, big Yankees fan. Thank you. Stanley Baldwin became an unelected Tory Prime Minister um, after his predecessor resigned. Uh, funny that. Uh, first Le Mans 24 hour race. Adolf Hitler's failed Beer Hall Putsch coup in Munich. Mount Etna erupted. Also funny. Not funny, but you know, cyclical, cyclical. Uh, and most importantly, Henri policier won the Tour de France. So Ned, explain to us why 1923 and what is Lot 212 or 212?
2: So uh, Lot 212 was a an object put up for sale in September 2020 at an online auction in London. And every other lot in the online auction was basically football memorabilia or cricket bats and stuff like that. Um, And there was this singular item that was from, broadly speaking, the world of cycling. That was, uh, its provenance was unknown. The detail about it Completely unknown, really, and I was alerted to its presence on this online auction by a friend of mine who I work with in a, in a different sport, actually, in the world of darts. A chap called John McDonald, whose job it is to he's the MC of professional darts, and he's the guy who welcomes the darts players onto stage. With that, uh, he's got excellent teeth and all that sort of thing. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. But he he sent me a message saying you might be wait, well, didn't actually. He just sent me a link to this this little online auction, and um, I looked at it, opened it up and saw that it was a reel of uh, a projection reel containing some some very old film. And the online auction house kind of thought it might be from the Tour de France, but really weren't sure much, much more than that. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not doing anything else. There's a COVID pandemic and we're all locked indoors. I'll, I'll bid on it. And um, turns out I was the only person pretty much in the world who was interested in it. And I, as a result, that's the only time I've ever bought anything at auction. I picked it up for 120 quid. And uh, a week or so later, it arrived in a jiffy bag through my front door. And I can safely say, without any sense of hyperbole, it changed my life.
1: Yeah, definitely. Do you happen to know how the auction house itself came upon it?
2: So that's a really good question. Um, because as soon as I found this reel of film and knew in that instant that it was going to take, take over my life, I became insanely curious as to how it had survived oblivion, basically, because these films used to get projected and then thrown in the bin. Uh, they, were, they were considered to be totally disposable. And uh, if you search, you, you won't find Pathé footage, you know, online from these newsreels, really, except for a few fragments every now and again. And so this is a historical curiosity. So I got back to the auction house and I said, listen, you, you, you don't even begin to understand how important this is to me. But I, I would be really grateful if you could tell me anything you know, it's provenance at all. And then I I discovered that that's not a question you ask online auction houses because I don't know, I don't want to sort of impugn anything, but I don't know that all their stuff is entirely above board all the time. And sometimes it's fallen off the back of a lorry. So they said, eventually they said, well, actually, all right, we'll try and be as helpful as we can. We bought it ourselves from an online auction house in Germany. And I said, excellent, which one? Put me in touch and I'll follow up the lead. And they said, no, we won't be doing that. Uh, and I said, all right, well, can you ask a few questions on my behalf? And they did. And then they got back to me and they said, all that we can tell you is that we bought it from a, f- a collector in France who was actually interested in football memorabilia and uh, had it uh, just knocking around in the back of his shed. So I don't know which part of France, and I don't know how it ended up with him, but that was the kind of, that was the dead end. I don't think I'll ever get further, further back than that.
0: But it seemed like from, you know, obviously you explained how it came about a bit more on the start of your m- mission. Uh, at the start of the book, and it just seems there's a lot of things that seem quite fateful, really, and coming to you and getting to you, and then your start of your journey, obviously being the voice of the People's Tour de France these days on ITV4. Did it feel like that at the time?
2: Uh, Completely, and um, and that sense of sort of serendipity and coincidence and the stars aligning hasn't left me to this day, you know. Um, Things even since I have finished the draft and it went to print and the book is kind of closed, um, things are still happening. The ripples are still kind of gently emanating from that precision point of the, of, the, of the jiffy bag landing in the hallway that created all this beautiful chaos in my life. So the, the things are still occurring. You mentioned Mount Etna. I was startled when I came, when I was um, in the uh, commentating at the, at the Giro d'Italia recently uh, deep into the second week, I think it was that Mount Etna started erupting violently in the summer of 2020 in almost exactly the same place as it had done uh, just to the west of Catania in 1923. So the, the echoes are profound and, and they, they keep sort of rumbling through my life. And so obviously it's about the Tour de France. Mostly, yeah, mostly it is.
0: Mostly, and oh, it's about the Tour de France is about discovering the people behind the short clip and basically you do a who do you think you're And about 50 million people that you see in this really short clip. <laughs> so tell us about the 1923 tour and, you know, what drew you in, obviously, once you started discovering the characters.
2: Well, I, I, I'm cautious. I don't want to be too much of a spoiler on this because part of the pleasure, I think, or I hope of reading the book is you come on that, in real time, you come on that journey with me as I look at, you know, at this fragment of film that's two and a half minutes long. It's unresolved. So it is from stage four. I think I can say that um, without spoiling the book the stage four of the 1923 Tour de France. But halfway through the clip, I think the projected film must have burnt on the bulb. So um, it just stops. And um, you don't therefore see who wins the stage into Les Sables d'Olonne. If that had existed, that would have made my life an awful lot easier because I would have known precisely which year it had been filmed. Because one of the very early discoveries I made, maybe I should have known this, but I didn't know it and it blew my mind, was that, the Tour de France for five years after the First World War followed exactly, and I mean exactly the same route, kilometre for kilometre, around the country. So actually, because there's no date on this film, save for the fact that it's stage four, um, it could have been either 1919, 1920, 1921, 1922, or 1923, or 19, 1924, I think. Uh, only in 1925 did Henri de Grange start to break into half Some of these enormously long stages create more of them, but slightly shorter distance. So the 1923 Tour de France, this repeated um, course was almost every stage was well over 400 kilometers in length. There were 15 stages and um, every second day was a rest day because, I mean, you know, even with the kind of rigors of the age, you couldn't expect these lunatics to race that distance every single day. And it's worth just remembering that they would start at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. In the pitch dark, and they would ride for the first two or three hours in total darkness before the sun came up. They would ride all throughout the rest of the day and only finish the stage at, at kind of like late in the evening the following day.
0: It's basically ultra distance racing now, but it's just normal. It,
2: it, 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 is, it is, but you can just about see how the um, birth of the modern Tour de France is happening in 1923 because it was only a couple of years later that uh, one of the riders, who is actually in the Peloton in 1923, becomes the first out and out domestique. Yeah? This is a thing that's just beginning to happen. And at certain points in the 1923 Tour de France, the future champion, uh, the, the first Italian ever to win the race, uh, Ottavio Bottecchia, is put to the service of the great Frenchman Henri Pellissier as a domestique. So drafting and kind of pacing back when they've suffered a, a mechanical, which was, you know, just part of life back then. They, they'd always puncture four or five times every day seemingly that was just becoming a thing so you've got the origins of kind of like big teams dominating and and teamwork really having an influence on on uh, the outcome of the race it's really interesting it's the birth of, it's you can just see it there like you know the, the future is being determined in these moments
0: and obviously the film given obviously its era is a silent film so was it your commentator's urge to sort of fill that that audio gap
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question um I, no, but I, I did want to. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a great beauty about this film. Uh, I think everybody feels that who I've ever shown it to. You know, it's startling, and especially I think the fact that it was hidden and lost, and now you know through a sheer chain of coincidences, it's come to light again. I think that adds something to the drama of actually seeing it for the first time. But. The frustration is viewing it in 2023. You want you want all that background noise. You want to kind of you know get beyond the black and white surface of it, and so that I think that kind of narration, if you like, that commentator's desire to, to to smooth out the edges or just bring the detail to life, is what inspired me to kind of pick away at the detail until I had it all, or as I went as far as I possibly could. There's there's one central character in the film who is uh, increasingly, as the book goes on, he becomes the central character in the book really. And he's this little known, or rather completely unknown, Belgian rider from East Flanders called Théophile Beekman, who was very, very good, but he wasn't one of the greats of the era. And as a result, his entire history, both on and off the bike, have been kind of erased completely and are unknown even to his family his surviving family, as I go on to discover. Um, I, I, I just became completely obsessed with this man. And I, as I sit here in Southeast London, I sit here, you know, safely in, in the understanding and the knowledge that there's no one alive in the world who knows more than Teofield Beckman, about Teofil Beckman than me, which is both really weird, <laughs> <laughs> but it fills me with a sense of kind of odd responsibility on his behalf. So a a lot of the story, and there are multiple stories woven into this book, a lot of the story is about how lives and people are remembered, and the inadequacy of that process of remembrance, and how at certain points where you are presented with unknowability, literally kind of like dead ends, then you sometimes... Jump, you, you, your imagination jumps in to fill in the gaps, you know, and I do this from time to time. So, sorry, it's a very long-winded way to answer it. was a very simple question of yours, but I don't I do not do that. I don't imagine commentary, but at times in my book, I allow Théophile Bécman to speak. And so I've created this kind of imagined persona in which he writes almost like a diary entry of the Tour de France as he goes.
1: And with it being a silent film as well, what would you say... Is the biggest roadblock that you encountered trying to find more context about about what was going on really?
2: Well I mean at first I think because yeah black and white is a big that's a big deal you know it's quite something when you start to read about the teams that were competing in the in this um, edition of the Tour de France, Automoto and Alcyon and you you realize that Alcyon their um, team kit was light blue Uh, and you think you know, light blue just looks like nothing on the, um, uh, on the, on the black and white footage. It's just a shade of grey. Um, but it, you kind of like, that's really hard to imagine into it. Um, and at one point, and it was, I remember it very clearly. I was sitting at this desk where you're talking to me now. I suddenly went, that character, right in the middle of the shot there, that's the Maillot Jean. Um, and bear in mind that um, the, the, the yellow jersey itself was only four years old. It came in in 1919, I think, didn't it? I might have got that wrong, but I think it came in in 1919. Eugene Christophe and all that. But um, yeah, I suddenly realized, not because you could see any yellow, but because the body shape matched the rider who was wearing the jersey that day. And I managed to sort of like figure that out eventually. And maybe that is a bit of a residual commentator's skill that I spend ages watching watching these riders in, in the modern peloton in great detail. So I did have a kind of vaguely transferable skill to use when I was trying to look at these, at these riders. And in one of the shots, you can see about 30 riders, you know, riding along this, um, what we now call gravel, but back then they simply called roads. You know, they're riding towards the camera, they're waving the camera away because there's dust being kicked up in their faces. And bit by bit, I suddenly, the penny dropped. I know who that is, I know who that is, I know who that is. But this process took months of kind of finding still photographs of these riders and comparing them to this moving footage. There's very, very little moving footage of any of these riders in existence on bikes, you know, and some of them are the, some of the greats of the Tour de France. And I think the single most startling moment was when I realised that a character in the first scene of the film who has his back to us but is quite clearly Henri Desgrange, the founder of the Tour de France. And there's a process through which I make that connection and and I, I suddenly go, that's Henri Desgrange. And in my various negotiations with the owners of this film, Pathé, I think we've established now, not beyond doubt, because something may surface, but I can't see anywhere, any other film footage of Henri de Grange in existence. So that was kind of mind-blowing, actually. It really was.
0: So when did you realise you wanted to make the story into a book? Because funnily enough, you actually mentioned the film and the fact that you thought it was the only footage of Henri de Grange the first time you were on the podcast. So I was re-listening to them this morning. Oh, did I? Okay, yeah. It's been going through your head for a while. So when did you realize, yeah, you were going to book it
2: up? Pretty soon, actually. Um, it, it just struck me as a story that I couldn't, I couldn't possibly keep to myself, you know. Uh, but I was then, after initial sort of wave of discoveries and little bits and pieces, I then kind of went into my shell a bit and stopped talking about it um, because I wanted it to come as a, as a as a surprise to everyone when they opened the book and went on this journey with me. But fairly quickly, I would in fact, I would say, from the moment I walked upstairs to that window there and, and, and un- unreal the film. And I kind of, 35mm film, I just held it up to the light. I would say from that moment on, I knew that I was going to have to write this story.
0: And what next? Film, TV show, podcast series? Podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it would have been like, it's weird, isn't it? It would have been, if I'd had the kind of wherewithal, it would have been, I think, quite an interesting podcast series, you know, to sort of have weekly updates about what I was discovering when and kind of, but uh, yeah, that, that, that boat sailed. Um, I, I am touring with the idea of taking the story and doing something else with it. Yeah. Um, but, but as I say, the story hasn't finished. The story hasn't finished. So, for, I mean, just two days ago, let me show you just two days ago, I got this, um, WhatsApp from Belgium where, as so I I've, to- I've spoken to you about Théophile Beekman and how I make contact eventually with his um, surviving family, the only surviving relations in existence. And they they don't know anything about him. But I got sent this picture of his granddaughter in the middle, uh, his great granddaughters who he never knew to the side and his great great granddaughters all holding a copy of my book. So stuff keeps occurring and I don't think this story's done yet. Uh, So I want to kind of carry on. Whether or not that, that you know, reach, reach, that becomes another book, I don't know. But um, the story is actually limitless. And it's really interesting what you just said. You know, you'd obviously done your, your, your Googling before this uh, podcast. And you said other things that don't get mentioned in the book that happened in 1923, you know, like the Wembley Stadium and Le Mans and all that sort of thing. Every time I hear of something that happened in 1923 that, I, that isn't in the book, it drives me absolutely mad. So, you know, there's so much to go on. Uh, somebody alerted to me to the fact the fact that um in Brideshead revisited the great book by Evelyn War, there's a passage that talks about this is nineteen twenty three and everything has changed because one of the conclusions I kind of reach when I reach out into politics and culture very quickly in this book is that for me nineteen twenty three is the point where the old world finally completely collapses, the first world war is consigned to history finally and 1923 is the year where the starting pistol for the Second World War is fired, you know, so it's this this critical point that is the birth of modernity. So I, I, I'm not done with that subject yet. I think it's really interesting.
0: Does it make you want to go and find more clips or you want just, this is yours and you're going to keep investigating
2: that one? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can. I mean, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? If anyone's got any old Pathé footage of the, the Tour de France kicking around. Wouldn't it be wonderful to think that there was all this stuff uh, knocking around? Uh, I certainly got the bug for it. And if anything ever fell into my lap again like this, I would uh, I would seize it. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm done with this journey just yet.
1: Have you ever been as obsessive about a year within cycling history than you are with
2: 1923? Well, um, no, uh, c- clearly. I mean, although... Although there's so much more that went on in 1923 that I don't even, you know, in the cycling world that I don't even touch on. You know, Paris-Roubaix, I think, was a remarkable edition of the the, the race that year. But, yeah, I mean, I think at one point in the book, because I do descend into something approaching a state of madness (laughs) uh, in this book, um, at one point I do kind of wonder out loud, and actually I think it's found its way into print, whether or not you can fall in love with a year (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm incredibly dismissive of 1922 and 1924. Uh, you know, and as far as 1925 is concerned, it might as well just do one, you know, but for me, it's all about 1923. And I, I, I kind of, it's, it's the most peculiar thing. I, you'd have to come on the journey with me to, to even begin to understand how that happened, but uh, it's happened.
0: <laughs> you've also, you've done a road book for 1989. I have. So what about I that have? one?
2: So that was, I was going to mention that, but yeah, so, they, um, the 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 roadbooks, which, as you know, are kind of these big, monolithic, massive kind of, and we've been producing them ever since. Uh, twenty eighteen was when we did our first one. We this the genesis for this idea came about because when I first presented the twenty eighteen roadbook to Chris Froome, and of course that was the last bike race he won, wasn't it? The Giro in twenty eighteen. He was very pleased to have his race win documented like that. Uh, um, but his first reaction was, what about all the other years, Ned? <laughs> well, well, you know, and I said, well, we had to start somewhere, Chris. We've, you know, this happens to be year zero, but straight away, I thought he's right, you know? And so with the road book, we have tentatively begun to retrofit history. So we're, you're going back from year zero, which is 2018, um, now step-by-step step in, a, in a kind of more scattergun way to pick out years of interest and try and fill in. Gradually, it's going to take us decades, you know, uh, the most notable years from 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 tours tours gone by and and racing calendars gone by and 1989 is available to to purchase now yeah it's a work of art
1: that's wonderful is it are you going to go back further than 1989 or is that like the starting point for where you'll then
2: no I, 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 no I mean uh, you know I would like to do I would like to do 1903 I think that would be really interesting I would quite like to do 1923 for obvious reasons um, but, I, but it's really interesting how we, how we gather this material, because the first thing that every roadbook has to contain is um, reliable results. You know, you need the, informa- the raw data. And um, a lot of this is, is very, very hard to find. In fact, it was extremely difficult to find in, in the case of 1989. You know, we were resorting to scouring um, physical copies of regional newspapers in Flanders and in Spain to find even the remote, you know, we were contacting race organisers from France to who, you know, this stuff is not just there uh, at all. So, but we've done it proud. You know, this is the only place in the world where all this information exists now. we want to do that. We want to honour every significant year in that, in that sense. But, but we might cut ourselves a bit of slack with the next one and maybe do one of the races closer to the present day in the digital age because that was a mighty amount of work. It really was.
0: There's probably a lot to talk about between
2: 1999 and 2005. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a few things there. We'd have to make a kind of big policy decision on how we recorded those quite early on, I think. I don't know quite. Yeah, we'd have to have a committee meeting on that one. What do we do? don't know. And XXX won the race. <laughs> Yeah. Redacted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh but there we go. So yeah. And eventually I think we want we we want our readers, our roadbook subscribers and readers to decide for themselves which year we tackle next. You know, that's the idea.
0: I'd personally choose two thousand five, because that was the first sort of France I remember,
2: which might make feel old. Two thousand five. I mean, that was a as far as I remember, a crashingly dull edition of the race, wasn't it?
0: Well, crashingly is one of the main reasons why I remember it so fondly because Uh, What first drew me into the race was Michael Rasmussen, uh, his climbing
2: style polka dot jersey and of course crashing three times in the final time trial. In the time trial, yeah. Yes, um, but in terms of the general classification, I seem to remember 2004 and 2005 were, of all the Armstrong victories, the most formulaic and uh, yeah, it was kind of done, wasn't it, the race within about four days. It was over. (laughs) Maybe 2006,
0: a lot went on that year.
2: It's quite, well, 2006 was mental, full on, full on bonkers. But the the post-Armstrong years were really, like, as a journalist, they were just incredible to work on, you know. And back then I wasn't commentating. I I was the guy wielding the mic and asking all the awkward questions. I mean, 2006 was Landis. 2007 was Rasmussen and Vinokurov. 2008 was uh, was Schumacher and Bernard Cole. And, you know, it was just all crumbling around us, you know, and the, the the boat only started to right itself and get a bit steadier in 2009 onwards. But for those three years, six, seven and eight, it was, it was just Solier Duval disappearing en masse in the middle of the race, just going. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy stuff actually.
1: I would nominate 2016 personally and then just dedicate the entire book to Matthew Heyman's Paris Roubaix victory.
2: Really? Do you think it has that much potential? Yeah. For yeah. me personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Yeah. that's interesting. <laughs> 2016, yeah. I mean, everybody has their favourite years, don't they? The first, you know, 2005 was your first memory of, of the race. Mine was 2003. I was obviously significantly older than you, but it was the first time I encountered the race. And, you know, this is what, some cycling aficionados who are, have a more historical investment in the sport than I do uh, forget, I think, sometimes willfully forget that we're not born with the Tour de France in our veins. We all discover it at some point in our, in our bi- biographies and um, we all have a first, a first Tour de France that we remember.
3: So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists we can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling... With Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about world tour teams like Yumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get twenty percent off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a twenty percent discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then hvmn's got a brilliant podcast which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health via Modern Nutrition with Doctor Lat Mansour. And you can find it in all the usual places.
1: And don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast comes from Cyclist, which is also a magazine which you can subscribe to and get every single month. And we're also a website, cyclist.co.uk. We've also got some brilliant social channels for up-to-date pro and tech and everything else coverage. So that's Instagram and Twitter.
0: Turn to this year's race predictions. I want your predictions for all the jerseys
2: for men and women. I mean, you're not going to you're not going to get them <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they're just like what? What is this obsession in the media with making predictions all the time? I do have stupid predictions. I'm quite prepared to make a stupid prediction. I love stupid prediction. Well, I, I mean, here, you know, predictions are only interesting if they're highly unlikely to happen. Yeah. So this take this. In the spirit which i I mean this is highly unlikely to happen, but it's really going to look smart if it does happen yeah the I've been making on our podcast that we do for the last year or so a little bit less than a year I've been proudly predicting that Jonas Vingegaard will not only never win the Tour de France again he'll also never win another grand tour uh so that's I'll stick with that. I mean, it's. I've just finished commentating the Dauphiné, so it feels like a really stupid thing to say now, um, but I would just about stick with it. Just about. I'm really hoping that Tadej Pogacar's wrist doesn't undermine me fatally. Um, but uh, when I think back to how he won the race last year, I feel that there was so much attributable to the presence in the race of Roglic, and the slight immaturity of Tade Pogac's approach and the astonishing contribution of Watt van Aert that led to his victory in the end. And I don't see van Aert in anything like that kind of form and shape, nothing like it. So I'm not sure he'd be, I mean, no one, frankly, even if he was, he wouldn't be able to repeat what he did last year. It was it was a complete one-off of a performance. Roglic isn't there and Pogac has learned on and his team are terrifyingly strong, I think uh, So I'll, 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 stick with it for now, but obviously it's, it's ludicrous, isn't it? I think the women's race, and I'll just stick with the yellow jerseys if I can, seems to be way more interesting, like, uh, in terms of Van Fluten, unless she's done something amazing with, the uh, the way she's paced her preparation for July, which you can't, your August, which you can't rule out, of course, cause she's a, mm. a master at that. But I, you know, it's, 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 um, very uncomfortable for her, I think. Uh, this, this final year of racing so far because she's not used to being on the back foot like this. But I think in terms of the spectacle, I'm glad she won the first one. I don't really think it's great for the sport if she runs away with the second one in her final year. Um, I think it would slightly debase the currency a little bit. So I and I don't anticipate that happening. I think it's um, it's become a much more dynamic and interesting peloton. So I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you um, who might win that. I really couldn't. I'll put
1: my neck on the line and mm. say Demi Vollering wow.
2: for me. Outlandish prediction. He, I know, shocking, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, I mean, I don't, following always interests me because it doesn't look, she doesn't look like someone who could beat them all on the high mountains. And, and can she, I mean, aren't they, they're going up the Tourmalade the women's uh, uh, race this year, isn't it?
0: Every race is going up the Tourmalade this
2: year. Yeah, every race is going up the Tourmalade. Even, even, tour, even the Even the Tour of Britain.
3: All
1: roads lead to the Tourmalé.
2: <laughs> um so but she's she's so versatile isn't she but is that would, would she survive the tourmalet climb against the likes of gaia R- 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 Rai right thank you raolini the little italian climber and the others you know who are on good form i don't know i can't see it maybe she can marta cavalli marta cavalli's in great form redemption how about i, I think um i think one of the outstanding riders in the women's peloton this year without a shadow of doubt because the way she's progressed is Marlon Royce mm. who's, yep. who's an absolute, you know, she's doing the kinds of things that we thought that Chloe Digert would go on to do had injury, not maybe, pre- you know, ob- obviously prevented her progression. But I think she's, but again, I can't see her, I don't think she's going to win, you know, I don't think she's going to win the Tour de France. And who knows? Listen, I think Van Vluten may win it after all. I mean, it's very, very possible, isn't it? I personally feel like Royce's Tour de Swiss win was kind of Demi Vollering paying it forward be like, I, know. I hope you get your home race win. Help me at the tour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. I think there's a great deal of that. But, you know, almost every SD Works win of note this year has been in part engineered by Royce's presence. She's that different and she's that dangerous. So she, I think she's really interesting. And she's looking at as a time trial. She's also like the world's most interesting person. Like she, she's, a, uh, she's a doctor, you know, she's a GP, qualified medic. She's a kind of virtuoso level violinist. And she's a local politician. She's a great environmental campaigner in Switzerland and stuff. So she's 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 quite a high achieving personality.
1: Is there anything that you would like to see happen? I don't mean in terms of GC action. I mean, maybe a certain someone getting a stage win and making the record his own, perhaps. But is there anything in that sort of ballpark that you would like to see?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it would be great to see We'll talk about certain someone in a second, but um, I, I, I would like to see Peter Sagan do something uh, in his final Tour de France. I think it's been almost as uncomfortable to watch, but in a different way uh, as, as Chris Froome's, you know, kind of irrelevance over the last few years, which is, um, I understand, you know, he's paid, he's paid an awful lot of money, but it's, it's, it's a legacy and it's a reputation that's just being tarnished a little bit by racing on. Okay. I'm perfectly human. I'm not, holding it against him or anything but in the case of Sagan um it it, I think what's been kind of uncomfortable about Sagan you know his complete lack of success really uh since he moved to Total Energy is the way that he's dragged the team down you know like they focused all their kind of like finances and money and and, uh, around this project which has yielded nothing and they should have I think kind of like abandoned it a while ago. So it would be really nice, I think, because I think a lot of that team, I think that, you know, my early memories of the Tour de France, they were a significant part of it, you know, and the Vaucler and the Roland generation, you know, they were important. They were they were the standard bearers for French cycling in many ways. And now they're just an absolute afterthought. So I would like to see some success. I can't quite see how it comes for him. But in terms of Cavendish, I, I, I must admit, I was, you know, in touch with him a little throughout the Giro, and when he crashed, he crashed right outside our commentary position, you know, and slid over the, the finishing line holding on to and you know, it was quite extraordinary to see him just get himself up, you know, stand up and walk away from that. Cause I thought that was the end of his career. I had no doubt when I saw that crash firsthand, I thought he's not getting up from that. Wow. It was that violent, you know. And he just bounced back. And I thought, and I think at that moment, and it was right in the middle of the race, what was it, stage eleven or something like that? I thought, mm-hmm. hang on. He's going to go all the way in this Giro, isn't he, somehow? And he's going to somehow engineer something out of it. And of course, you know, that final day in Rome, it was an extraordinary way for the race to end. And because he doesn't win very often anymore, every time he does, there's a real narrative to it, isn't there? There's a real story. Even if it's in a relatively minor race, there's a real story. His last two victories, the British National Time Trial Championship of last year, and then the last stage in his last Giro, his seventeenth stage win at the Giro d'Italia, which had he not done all the things he's done at the Tour de France, would itself be just extraordinary. So that so that brings us to the Tour de France and I do think you know. I haven't looked at the course in enough detail yet because I'm started finalising my prep. But what are there? Six or seven chances? I, you know, it's a fairly. I think
1: there's eight flat stages, if I remember rightly.
2: You think it's as many as eight? I'll take your word yeah. for it. You know, but I, you can kind of see it all mapping itself out, can't you? Probably the first three or four will just slip through, and then there'll be another one that should have been a bunch sprint, but they let the break go to the line, yeah. and then all of a sudden he's only got three or four chances left, and he's got to get through the Alps, and then all the heavier, and then. get through the Alps and then there's a really hard day that dispenses with Fabio Jakobsen and Dylan Grunewagen and Caleb Ewan's already packed it and gone home so you've got a diminished sprinter's field and then all of a sudden we're in Paris and it's his final day on the Tour de France and you could genuinely see and I'm not I'm not this isn't even fanciful I think it's a genuine prospect you could see him recruiting an entire kind of a team of helpers from other teams just because his status in the peloton is that significant. So what Geraint Thomas did in Rome, you could genuinely see in Paris, like him getting a lead out train of six or seven (laughs) other riders from different teams and working for him just to get him over the line. And I kind of like a weird bit of me, the romantic bit of me, one kind of wants to go, don't win the first bunch sprint. Keep us on the edge of our seats all the way to Paris and do it in Paris. Because can you imagine? Can you imagine? It'll be everyone versus the Belgians. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What? I see. I don't buy this thing about Merck's being. I don't really buy that. I think Eddie is just like completely above this whole record thing because he just looks at it and goes, "Well, it's of no relevance to me." Look, look at everything. Look at my. Have you looked at my Wikipedia page? Is that the standout (laughs) achievement that I won thirty-four stages of the Tour de France? I don't think it is. And also, you know, he's the first to point out that he did it in a Wout van Aert style and he did it on all sorts of different you know parkours, whereas Cavendish is a specialist so i'm not I'm not denigrating Cavendish's achievement i just don't buy the the kind of belgian beef sort of thing at all i don't think that's the case at all
1: achieved in two very different ways
2: uh, yeah i mean in two different eras it says a lot about the eras but again, you know but that brings us back in a funny way to what watt van aert did at the at the tour last year and i may have made this point in your podcast before but i think it bears making again that honestly think that in winning the green jersey competition effectively after just a few days of racing, in taking that um, brilliant stage win in in Calais and then also winning a bunch sprint and also winning uh, an individual time trial and also accidentally almost winning the King of the Mountains competition by mistake and two or three times rescuing Jonas Vingegaard's yellow jersey and working as a domestique every other day. I do not think any rider in the history of the Tour de France has done that before. And I I think it was the greatest single individual performance, not just that I've witnessed in the Tour de France, but arguably there's ever been in the Tour de France. Because to do that without the protection of another rider, you just do it on your own. You do all those things on your own. Not even Merckx did that.
1: That was when I was interviewing you for uh, your show tours around around the country.
2: I, I made that point. I'm just boring, then, aren't I? I just, I've only got one point, so I'm going to make it over <laughs> no. and over again.
1: <laughs> but you also said you also said that you liked how the white fanet spirit has disseminated across the peloton.
2: Yeah, I think so. Not it's not just him, is it? But I, it, you know, that generation, this generation, seemed to seem to be, you know, with a few exceptions, Vingegaard being one of them. Although even he was a little bit. Oh well, I might as well just attack now at the Dauphiné, you know, because he's some. I just born of his I- immense confidence in his own physical attributes. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's an attractive it's an attractive way of racing. But uh, another point that I was just thinking about when when we were talking earlier about the two thousand and four, two thousand and five tours and how Armstrong used to, and indeed, and I'm not making any comparison other than the one era followed on from the other era, but the Sky years, both those methodologies in terms of winning the, the Tour de France. They had differences, obviously, but but they also had similarities in the sense that they would not spurn an opportunity to to take the yellow jersey and to take time in the first week. They just went, you know. Okay, there's a, there's a mountain top finish on uh, on stage six in the Pyrenees. Boom, Richie Port and Chris froom off you go up the road and, and let's take a minute and make a huge statement. And you know they weren't very interesting as a result <laughs> very often. So they were quite boring races in some ways, but very effective. I'm not decrying that. But, but here's the thing I don't quite understand. So the Giro d'Italia last year, this year, and the Giro d'Italia last year, the GC races were kind of like, wait, hold, hold, mm-hmm. hold, 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 go. Yeah? And it was the, yeah. oppos- it was the opposite of the, the Armstrong stroke Sky sort of method of don't waste an opportunity. It was like, waste every single opportunity and then just go go in big when you have to. Um, and, and that came under criticism for being boring. So wh- what do the cycling public want exactly? I don't know.
1: I distinctly remember the day that it was meant to be a regular sprint stage. Chris Froome and Geraint, Torres, Geraint Thomas even broke away from the peloton with Peter Sagan and I want to say Bodnar. And they made it all the way to the finish. And that was so thrilling. I wish we could see more of
2: that. It was a good day of racing. And the funniest thing about that day, um, was that 2016, 2017, something like that? I want to say 16. 16, I think you might be right. The the funniest thing about that day was, so Bodnar and Sagan, two teammates, were in that group, as well as, as you say, Thomas and Froome. And um, the obvious sort of story was that Sagan was trying to engineer was that his great domestique and uh, friend Mathieu Bodnar would be given the stage win. Chris Froome was benefiting massively from the work that Bodnar was doing on the front of this group because Froome was making huge gains in the general classification against some key rivals. So the sort of like etiquette and the understanding in that group was should have been give Bodnar the win. Yeah. He'll Mm -hmm. never, you know, in fact, he has won an individual time trial, hasn't he, Mathieu Bodnar? But, you know, this was a, this was a kind of nod. And I think Sagan was trying to look at Froome in the running and go, look, you understand what's happening today. Give Bodnar the win." And Froome started sprinting for the stage. The absolute idiot. At which, at which point Peter Sagan (laughs) went, why you do that, Chris? (laughs) No, why you do that? Why you do that? So, and then now, now I have to win the stage. You're stupid. So, like, Sagan so ended up winning the stage because Chris didn't get the rules, <laughs> you know. Like, so uh, that was funny. I thought that was a really funny day.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't care too much for enforcing the rules, but you know, I, I don't believe in necessarily gifting stages. But in that circumstance. I, I was sat at home clear, clear as day. I was like, oh, well, evidently, Bodnar will get the win and then Chris Froome will finish in second. Yeah. And I was like, Chris, what are you doing? That's not the script you're meant to follow.
2: <laughs> but he's so funny, isn't he, Froome? Because uh, even then, I mean, I think he's quite different now and he's learned on, but even then in 2016, he was, he was so much an outsider still uh, you know in terms of his understanding of the history of the sport and the kind of like etiquette of the peloton I remember and I've s- said this quite often but it's funny for those of you who haven't heard it that 2013 and maybe 2015 as well when I was still at, on the road you know interviewing him every day in yellow every time I did an interview with him often the conversation would be about whether or not he's still afraid of Thibaut Pinot or Romain Bade. And he just completely couldn't remember which was which. <laughs> and he used to, before we did every interview, he used to go, oh, Ned, nid, nid, no, um, Just remind me, which is which? Like that.
1: You should have lied and said it was the opposite yeah, way around.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to have to say to Chris, I can't believe you're asking me this again. You've been racing against these guys for like three or four years. Bardet is skinny. Thibaut Pinot looks like a boxer. They're different people, you know, so.
0: Thank God if- it wasn't his year when Jean-Christophe Perrault joined the party on the podium.
2: Amazing, huh? Jean Christophe Perrault, yeah. Second place to Vincenzo Nibali. And Thibaut Pinot finished on the podium, didn't he? By the way, the I best ho- day ever. I hope you're all looking forward to um, uh, uh, Group Armour FDJ's uh, Tour de France because it's going to be very interesting, isn't it? Between Godou and Pinot, I think.
0: Bastille days, Pinot's. The rest of it is Godou's.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. As a Thibaut Pinot lover, I would love for him to get a stage win, and then the attention sort of turns in a way.
0: Another, yeah. Another two episodes of next year's Netflix.
1: Let's yeah. make it three. And
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I watched it with my girl when she was like, I've had enough of Mark Maddio. Can we not have any more?
2: <laughs> He's, um, Mark Maddio features in my book very, very tangentially because I do remember uh, seeing an interview by Mark Maddio years ago, about 10 years ago, where he described one of his riders going on a stupid breakaway like that and it, it all failing spectacularly and he was furious he was berating his rider for being so naive and i can't remember who it was um and uh, in only a, the the only only the way that mark madio possibly could and he used the french adjective ubuesque and i remember thinking that's an interesting adjective and i when in the course of uh, researching my book i realized that he was referring to the uh play written by a french playwright in 1896 King Ubu, Roi Ubu, uh, by a playwright called Alfred Jarry, who is quite, he's a character in my 1923 book, um, who I've included because of his love for the bicycle and his massive alcohol intake, which I've detailed, uh, documented bottle for bottle in 1923. So that's another reason to buy the book. (laughs) And it it all links back to Marc Maddio, using the adjective Ubu-esque, ridiculous.
1: Your mind is so interesting, honestly. Like, I could sit here all day.
2: It's frazzled. It really is. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Someone else who
0: briefly comes up in the book is Fred Wright, who you sort yes. of have a brief sort of thing about a reflection with your main character, let's say. So what would you think if on stage four of this year's tour we're going over a bridge and Fred
2: Wright decides to attack Ah, oh, that would be, I mean, it would be it would have to be the right sort of bridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? Because um I, I'm actually going up on Friday um to the Nationals and I'm having to hire a car and drive up there for various complicated logistical reasons. I don't I don't normally drive anywhere, but um I hate driving. And um so I'm taking a passenger with me who I've insured to drive the car as well, and that is Fred Wright's dad. Oh, Phil, how who's wonderful. A mate of, he, he's a mate of mine who's not read the book, um, but I think I might give him a copy and, uh, and just try and point out to him that this f- ancient Flemish rider who I'm totally obsessed with has a biographical intersection with his son that is so niche and so obscure that I even I hesitated to tell Phil. But I've got an entire journey up to the northeast of England uh, in which I can tell Phil about <laughs> how his son and Tailfield Birkman have something in common.
1: Goodness me, you should quickly make an audio book and then just make him listen to it on the drive.
2: <laughs> I've made an audio book, but it's something like 10 and a half hours long or something. I don't think it's quite that, yeah. hit some traffic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you get there and back. Yeah, exactly. But for what it's worth, Fred Wright is my prediction for the Nationals.
2: Yeah, I think, he's, I think, it's, I think it's Fred Wright's prediction for the Nationals is Fred Wright as well. He's very confident. But um, the, but but that's see, the pointless thing about making predictions because when's this podcast going to be released afterwards? Mm. So, but then everyone will see. Yeah, yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, I also hate making predictions, so I'm with you on that one, Ned. Good. Every time they make me write predictions, I'm like, no, don't make me do it. <laughs> Robbins is, al-
0: <laughs> is always the most obvious ones. It's like, come on, Robin, just say something that's a bit contrary. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did. I had a bet. So that's kind of a prediction, isn't it? I had a bet a while ago that Richard Carapaz would win the Tour de France. Oh. Um, to be
1: fair, yeah, I probably would have bet on that as well.
2: Yeah, but then you didn't – did you see him race at the Dauphine?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't have bet too much. but
2: <laughs> uh, I'm not confident I'll be getting a return on that one, unfortunately. But, uh, which is a shame for the race, actually, because when I placed the bet, not knowing what his form might be going into the, to the Tour, I thought he could be a really animating presence. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, and, then, and the rider genuinely, they need to be very afraid of the top two, if they're going to look at each other, you know, uh, well, and there's not many. See, once you look beyond them, you're kind of thinking, I don't know where else I'm really looking for. And we saw that a bit, yeah. the Dof- the Dauphine, wasn't it? As was a Pelotona de Vitesse, you know, it was, it was, it was Vingegaard and everyone else. And, you know, from the moment he attacked, you know, you just, Adam Yates, he's just looking around to see what's happening behind him, you know, and So you do need, uh, you know, ideally the race needs an interloper who they've got to be worried about. Um, And I can't see that. I hoped it would be Carapaz, but I can't see it.
0: On my Googling pre-show, Wikipedia suggested that your birthday is 11th of July, which is during the tour. Is that correct?
2: It is. I share my birthday with Caleb Ewan. Oh, fun. Ah. A different age, obviously. But uh, Caleb and I have, yeah, always have our birthdays in the uh, the Tour de France, during the Tour de France.
0: So I looked up. I looked at the stage of what's on the day. It's uh, stage 10, Volcania to Iswa, 167 kilometers, four category three climbs, one category two, a uh, descent that goes down towards the finish. What would you like to happen? What would be a good birthday present? What stage number is it? 10.
2: That sounds like a Fred Wright stage. Yeah. Here we go, lads. Here we go. It does, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like, so stage 10, the gaps will be big on GC already. Fred will have lost, you know, 25 minutes. That'll be all right. So he'll get in the move. And it sounds like, yeah, cat three, a few cat twos, bit of a dissent. Yeah. But he's got to try and do it on his own, hasn't he? I I kind of, I think that, you know, he's, he's so talented, but this overthinking thing about tactics, you know, I think he's just got to rely on his raw strength and just try and leave everybody and, uh, go across the line on his own. Yeah, Fred Wright on my birthday, that'd be right, wouldn't it? That'd be beautiful. In the National
0: Champions jersey.
2: In the National Champions jersey, as you predicted.
0: Yeah, what more could you want? Yeah. (laughs) Moving on to the women's, because obviously that should be a really good race. Second year, first one was really good. Second, they've sort of upped the ante a bit with the course. And obviously, like you say, it's a bit more open. What do you think sort of the next step in there, keep on building? Do you think it's going in the right direction, or do you think more needs to be done?
2: Uh, I thought it was a. I thought it was a, probably as good a start last year as they could have possibly hoped for. I, th- I think the right rider won it. We have talked about why it wouldn't necessarily be a good thing if she doubles up, uh, and you know the right the right combination of riders wore the jersey as well. It was great that Voss wore the jersey. Voss, oh. um, you know, and and I think that she's going well enough to win the you know wear the jersey again this year. She won't win the race. What do they need to do? It? Well, I mean, eventually, eventually. I think it, this is really difficult now because I, I was I was in Monaco relatively recently with um, just catching up with Lizzie Deignan, just calling in on the dignans and just chatting to Lizzie sort of kind of uh, off the record a bit. And Lizzie, Liz, Lizzie well, she, she'd she say this on the record as, as well. She, she would kind of suggest rightly that you just got to be a bit careful with the pace of developing the racing program now because it's spread. So one of the great strengths I think of, the women's calendar over the entire piece, you know, through every month and the entire racing season, is that you really invest in the in the personalities because the same riders are in every bloody race, you know, whether it's the Giro Donne or the um, or the Tour de France or the classics. It's always the same riders. It kind of boils down to six or seven at the front, and you know them all, and you know you know what they're all about. You don't really get that in the men's peloton so much. So, you, in terms of the kind of like storytelling, I think it's really you know, it's got real strengths and positivity, but it's unsustainable, isn't it? You know, you can't expect this, this crust of elite riders at the top of the sport to be at the top of their game for that many race days across all these different uh, formats. So, I can see a situation, now the, the the situation with the Giro Donne is fragile, you know, with RCS and with the television money that may or may not be there and if it's not televised again, I think the future is bleak for that race, I have to Mm. say. So, I would, you know, it's a venerable race. It's led the way where the Vuelta and the Tour de France are, have come along latterly. Um, the women's tour, I'd be surprised if it ever comes back. Um, it's terrible to say, you know, that the state of the UK finances and just on the floor. Yeah. So, there is potentially, in a, let's just catastrophize a second and say the Giro Doni is cancelled. It, it doesn't come back next year. There is room, I think, for the Tour de France quite quickly. To grow into a three-week race, and to dominate uh, the women's calendar completely. Now, you could argue that's the worst possible thing that could happen for women's racing. Or, like me, I think you could be a little bit, possibly a bit more cynical about it, and say that would be total parity, and it would catapult the standing of the women's sport into a entirely different kind of category, if you like, in the same way that, you know, for. for Ninety percent of the population in this country, there's only one bike race in the calendar, and that's the Tour de France. You know, maybe women's racing needs that absolute showcase event that puts everything else in the shade. And maybe if if the, the decimation of these women's races continues, maybe that's the the direction of travel uh, sooner rather than later. And I think you know, I, I'd be surprised if in the next couple of years it doesn't become a solid two week race
0: yeah I think we 've seen that across sports as well there's you get the argument of you want the women 's cycling to have its own thing to be but for it to be more accessible to a wider audience, I feel like it has to mirror the sort of historic thing like the women 's ashes this week is got getting going to get record crowds women 's World Cup is probably going to be watched by more people than before despite it being in Australia and New Zealand.
2: I mean, absolutely. I heard a really interesting interview on the radio this morning with Billie Jean King, who, of course, was, you know, that one of the big uh, pioneers for women's sport. And she said, you know, one of the great success stories, I know there's always been the disparity in terms of prize money in women's tennis, but in terms of the competition themselves, you know, there, there's been, they led the way, actually, women's tennis. And um, and I, I think that one of the reasons why the Tour de France still draws in uh bemused and startled newbies to it is just its sense of scale you know they do this for three weeks they do it every day and I think that that's lacking in the women's peloton you know that sense of awe of what they do I think needs to be reflected in the women's peloton I see no reason why we can't move towards that and I I think that might be the outcome whether it's the right one I don't know because we're all making this up as we go along aren't we but um I I, I, I feel that should be that should be what takes it onto the next step because huge strides have been made over the last couple of years. And, and that was the other thing. So, to, sorry, talking to, to Lizzie, I was saying, why what's motivating you to come back after the birth of your second child and do it all over again? You know, she loves racing. So there's that. She still thinks that she's going to be a significant player and take some major wins, if not this year, then next year. Um, but also she said, look, I've been, I've been a part of this peloton for over a decade now. And frankly, I've been paid nothing. You know, relatively speaking, up until this point. So the finances and the salaries that riders are earning now are, for the first time in Lizzie's career, really genuinely rewarding. And she's saying, "You expect me to walk away from that?" <laughs> so you know, I don't begrudge. I don't begrudge these athletes. There, you know, it's, I think it's. Uh, it's. It's good time. It's good times for. Let's be positive about it. It's really good times for women's racing, but it's cycling, isn't it? So it's always going to be wobbly and unstable.
0: There's no need to walk away. She's still capable. You know, I've Van Vleuten still going. She wanted to win the Tour de France. She did it and now she wants to win on the Tourmalade.
2: Yeah, I mean, Lizzie, I'm sure Lizzie's going to win big, big races. But even if she doesn't, you know, even if she doesn't come back to her very best or, or a kind of winning version of it, it's it's perfectly legitimate for her to hang around and just cash in, basically, and, you know, try and get another contract and another one and, and earn some money that would, um, you know reward her for her services to the sport because she's she's been one of the absolute standard bearers for a long time now
0: what do you think needs to be done in the uk with the current situation that you alluded to
2: oh god i don't know i really genuinely i'm very concerned about it now i mean i I think that the tour of britain which is the men's race um hasn't as far as i've understood yet attracted a sponsor and i know how important that extra income from sponsors is in terms of paying for the entire race it's a phenomenally expensive bike race but if that race is in genuine trouble and i deeply hope it isn't you know I, but if that question mark that's hovering over its viability for next year continues to grow i think it'll happen this year for sure then how did that happen you know because this is a big big economy the uk despite you know the mismanagement of its uh, of it <laughs> by the government we have um, there should be enough money to put a bike race on. We have enjoyed phenomenal success, both with the men and the women on the road over the last decade. And, and had had the race finished last year, rather than being abandoned because of the Queen's death, I have absolutely no doubt that Tom Pidcock would have won it, mm-hmm. which would have made the last four winners of the Tour of Britain, Wout van Aert, Julien Alaphilippe, Mathieu van der Poel and Tom Pidcock. Tell me what other race in the calendar could boast that? You know, this was this was becoming a big deal and to have it all kind of like whipped away like, like it's threatening to be is just extraordinary.
1: I used to go to domestic races like the Chorley Grand Prix. I don't know if anyone listening remembers those days watching people like Ian Bibby or Rory Townsend still racing and a lot of the cancellations were then at that time to do with sponsors not wanting to put money in because of Brexit and it seems like there's no sort of solution to that aspect of, of sponsorship at the moment?
2: No, I mean, you know, the brands just haven't got money to spare. The, the, the cycling, you know, your most obvious sponsors that you would go to are cycling brands. Um, and the the, the the industry is in a state of total chaos at the moment. So no one's got any money to to splash around and, and no one's investing in the future because they haven't got the readies to kind of contemplate doing that. Well, how much of it's due to Brexit? I don't know. Um I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I think also this the weird thing is it never really took root, not properly, even in those boom years of kind of 2008, 9, 10, 12, 13, where, you you know, and then the Tour de France came to Yorkshire in 2014. That was a real kind of like, that was where you really thought you can, you know, secure the future of British road racing. But it hasn't happened. And even then, I think a lot of big brands, and I picked up on this, you know, were were still quite wary about associating themselves with cycling. Particularly in this country where it's not in our DNA, it's not something that we naturally kind of understand particularly. And so big commercial brands were going cycling. Mm, Isn't that all a bit Lance Armstrong? You know, and then with the multifarious scandals that kind of circulated around British cycling and Team Sky and Jiffy bags and all this sort of thing. I don't think it's been an attractive proposition for big brands to, you know, they're scared about their image. And I I think us on the inside of the sport, perhaps forget that, what it looks like from the outside where, you know, if you say cyclist to people, a lot of people will still say doper. Yeah, it's, it's mad it's mad but that's like kind of like i think where we're at and i think we sometimes lose track of that or lose sight of that perspective
0: well it's interesting this week actually the tour of britain announced that the nottinghamshire stage last year or well, the nottinghamshire council announced it that it brought in over four million to the local economy which
2: yeah i mean it looks like the other side of the coin which makes everything else a bit weird but then but then because because the uh, you know bike racing well actually it's not this isn't a uniquely british story but it is in the sense that it, this is this is important, you know, but the, the viability of the sport in the country, it relies, as you say, on, by and large, on local authority funding. And local politicians are scared, again, of cycling associations in another way, aren't they? Because cycling has become part of the culture war. You know, cyclists are lycra-wearing, red-light-jumping, pavement-hopping hooligans. And why would we... And, you know, the motoring lobby is increasingly loudmouthed. And uh, so it's it's quite hard. I admire any local politician who gets this stuff through and actually gets the council to sign off on it because it can't it can't be easy. It really can't in this day and age to actually stand up in a public forum and present you know to your voters. You've spent how much on a bike race? Well, you know, however the, the sums might add up, it's a tough one. That it's a tough one.
0: One other thing that's quite important going on cycling at the moment. So I was interested. Your background is in languages. Your foreground is in cycling. Why didn't you get the to- co op to do the Tour de France Unchained series? You could have done every version.
2: Ah, oh, that, that would have been something, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got widely ignored by Netflix. That's, um, yeah. <laughs> I could have been, what's the name of the um, Steve Chanel? I could have been Steve Chanel. You I mean, be I been. didn't race the Tour de France and neither did he. So I.
0: <laughs> you could have been doing it in multiple languages. Who needs dubbing? Well, exactly, yeah.
2: I've been watching it in French. Actually, I haven't watched much of it. I got a bit bored halfway through the third episode, <laughs> I think. It came on
1: automatically for me in French, and I was so confused when everyone was talking about how the dubbing was horrendous. And I was like, me did too. we watch
2: the same thing? <laughs> I, it came on automatically in French for me, and I've just stuck with it in French, and I like it in yeah, French. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You it, if you want Madio, you want him in French, don't you? You don't want him any exactly. other way. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, I think the
0: weird thing, I have actually been watching it in the dub version. Not for much. my own choice. Right. I, Shame. I think the weird thing is, so if you've watched that, I'm assuming what they put in on the little commentary bits is it like a French commentary. It's like they do Drive yeah. Survive. They use the normal commentator, put him in. So it, yes. it's, because they're dubbing it, they dub that. So it's not a commentator's voice doing the commentary. So oh, it right. feels a little bit fake in that sense. Yeah.
2: Well, all these tricks and weirdnesses about you know documentary and filmmaking. So Mark Mark Cavendish is, has made a Netflix documentary that's coming out in August, actually, um, and I'm a peripherally I've been peripherally involved in that. But one of the things I've done in that is um, is because they have to buy the rights. To show the footage. And they have to buy them from all the different race owners and organisers. So, you know, they paid ASO an awful lot of money for the Tour de France footage. But that's not the end of what they have to do. They have to then buy the rights for the production to use their commentary yeah. So in the sense, in the, they have to go to Eurosport and say, can we use your commentators? And then the commentators will be paid retrospectively for their voice ending up. On and the same with ITV's commentary, et cetera. But they didn't really have the budget to do that as well. So what they've done instead is come directly to the commentators and gone, can you just come in and re-commentate what you said the first time around? <laughs> Which is because you know, they haven't got the rights to use that recording. So you, they have to create a new recording using our voice. So that's been profoundly odd, going to a sound studio and kind of re-commentating your own voice, fake. Are you trying or to like fake.
0: literally recreate it word for word in the same tone?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, sometimes. And, and, or, or, yeah, it's been an odd process, actually. Very strange. <laughs> but it gives you an opportunity to kind of iron out the things that you got wrong and kind of correct them.
0: And going back in a circle then, would you consider putting out your Pathé film with and they botting commentary on it.
2: I think you have to see the film to understand that commentary wouldn't be appropriate. I, w- I would be more inclined to take a lesson in uh, how to play the piano and learn how to play kind of like a nice silent movie accompaniment to it than put my own uh, cheap voice on such a beautiful bit of footage. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin classes. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Right,
0: well, Ned, it's been a pleasure. Your third one ticked off. Let's get you booked in for number four. All right, lovely. Nice to speak to you both. Enjoy the Tour de France. Thank you Cheers. very much.
1: Thanks, Ned.
0: Ned Bolting, everyone. What a great man. I could actually listen to him all day. He's just got that voice.
1: He he's got the voice and he's got the stories as well. They just kept coming. I was I was enthralled.
0: I was actually thinking, you know, I want to add this little bit on, but we're over now. We, more than our normal podcast length, we obviously have some that have gone longer, but... Yeah. I have a perfect warm-up for the Tour de France, even though he refuses to make predictions.
1: Honestly, I'm with him on that boat because cycling is so crazy that anything can happen. So like it would be pointless me making a prediction because I just feel like it'd be so wrong. But
0: that's why I think it's so fun. It's so fun because you can get it completely wrong. <laughs> As the previous writer of the twenty twenty one classic on Cycles.co.uk, Tele Pagaccio won't win the Tour de France this year. Mm. You know, there's a lot of fun to be had.
1: Is there? Okay, I'll I'll take your word for it. I probably won't listen to it, which is what I do all the time anyway. So not much difference there.
0: In saying that, you now have to make some predictions for the Tour de France.
1: Oh, God's sake. Uh, <laughs> okay, I will. I I feel like Taddy Pogacar has learned to sort of control himself a bit more. I mean, it was very unfortunate that they kept counter-attacking him and then counter-attacking him and then he had to attack himself. Do I think his team will be on the same level as Jembo Um I'll say maybe no. I'll say maybe no. So I will say that Oskar's boyfriend will unfortunately be second on the podium and yeah. Jonas Vingegaard will win again. And I oh, I hate predictions so much. <laughs> How about you, Will?
0: So I think that it's too soon. Something will happen uh, with his wrist, either a crash or it's just not good enough. He'll step off and not finish the tour. Winger will romp home. And then next year we have a proper showdown where they both won two and it'll be exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it won't finish in Paris. Yeah, uh,
1: that's true.
0: I, I think Carlos Rodriguez wins the white jersey. White wow, vaner probably going to win the green jersey again, mm-hmm. just because he's versatile. Polka dot jersey is probably going to be Van Gogh, because that's how it works these yeah. days. Yeah. Uh, Demi Vollering will win the Tour de France, fam.
1: I, I already said that, so you can't have that. <laughs>
0: yeah, but she's just going to dominate it. Tough. <laughs> just take the jerseys off. Yeah. Although she's not, doesn't qualify for the white jersey. I don't actually have the list of who qualifies, but uh, if Sharon Van still qualifies, I don't know if she does, but she will win it again if yeah, she's still you. in the age range. But it will just be a, I think it will be an SD works romp.
1: And Thibaut Pinot will win another stage in his final Tour de France. That is the one prediction I'll make, I'll make and stick by everyone. Thank you.
0: I have checked out the Bastille Day right
1: profile
0: yeah yeah he's gonna he's gonna win thanks we will all enjoy our netflix
1: (laughs) don't i'll be like sweating throughout the stage like just absolutely stressed
0: (laughs) anyway so i how i flicked through read large parts obviously time constraints meant i haven't read every single word but i got most of the way through i'm just about to come to the ending of ned's book 1923, The Mystery of Lot 212 on the Tour de France obsession, which is out now. And I really enjoyed it. As uh, someone who's got a history degree and as a cycling journalist, it's fascinating. It was very much like it just taught, there's a lot of stuff in there. But you, you obviously think, oh, yeah, it's about this thing about the Tour de France, but there's obviously the history of the people, there's a history of politics and culture at the time. And it talks about other years around that and other years recently. And I think that people should buy it.
1: I think it's interesting because it's a whole new way to sort of investigate and look at something when you only have sort of a minuscule amount of film from that time period. Plus it's silent, plus it's in black and white. Like, oh, just, I love it, love it.
0: I was amazed by, obviously, you know, the quality of the film mm. it was still so good. It sort of make, makes you think, like, people watching at the time, I don't think they probably appreciated what they were watching
1: it's like HD
0: he mentions in it that it was sort of played uh, like a cinema before they were watching something else and when you go to the cinema these days if you even do just watch it on Netflix hmm. but why aren't they showing the toilet front pre-films these days come on
1: we should get a petition going yeah they work
0: <laughs> right Robin it's been a pleasure i see you for the next one
1: it's been lovely chatting to you Will see ya And don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast comes from Cyclist, which is also a magazine which you can subscribe to and get every single month. And we're also a website, cyclist.co.uk. and uh, We've also got some brilliant social channels for up-to-date pro and tech and everything else coverage. So that's Instagram and Twitter.